Hey, good morning. Good to see y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, uh, Pastor Ben, who's, where's Ben at? There he is. Ben kicked off the book of Acts a couple weeks ago, and in that sermon, which was excellent, uh, he said that uh, I had saved like the four best chapters, because we're reading through this unfolding grace together, that saved the four best chapters in the entire Bible for him. And, you know, I don't think he's wrong. I mean, the book of Acts is amazing. That's why our men's and women's Bible studies are going to be studying it for the the whole of this school year. You can sign up this morning with that. But the book of Acts uh, was written in the shadow of the cross. And as grace unfolds from the cross, and you can see the victory of the cross Uh, the unfolding grace of God moving forward and changing the entire world. Like as you open the book of Acts, you see that the curse that we read about in Genesis 3 is being unraveled. Like with the coming of the Spirit of God at Pentecost, like the Tower of Babel, that curse at Babel is reversed. And you see the Israel, the true Israel of God, begins to return from its long spiritual exile. Like at the Feast of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, the church is born. And it becomes the focus of God's eternal plan. And it would just make sense that since the church is the focus of God's eternal plan, it would also be the focus of the serpent's attack. And so by the time you get to chapter 6 in the book of Acts, and we'll be in chapter 6, you can turn there. Like our enemy has already tried a few of his favorite tactics to try to stop the spread of the gospel. Like right out of the gate, he tries mockery. Like the Spirit of God comes, they begin to speak in other tongues, and those who hear them in the early hours of the morning say, these guys must be drunk. And so to answer whether or not they're drunk, Peter just gets up and does a little impromptu sermon. And the result of that sermon is it said those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 were added. Like And so to the, as the result of mockery, he gets up and says, hey, we're not drunk, by the way, but, you know, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. And 3,000 are added to the 120 who received the Spirit in the upper room. And then the enemy tried the tactic of intimidation. Don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, uh, thank you, but no thank you. And it says that disciples are all filled with the Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. And so then the enemy tries sowing the seeds of hypocrisy through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know that story. And the church deals with that. God's Spirit deals with that situation. And it says that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever. Remember, 3,000 were saved in one day, and now more than ever. And so finally, Satan tries just outright persecution. He has the apostles beaten and threatened that they would be killed. And it says that they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And so every time 
like Satan tries to thwart the spread of the gospel, it resulted in boldness and growth. But this kind of rapid growth kind of carries with it its own challenges, and the enemy knows that. So in Acts chapter 6, he pulls out the big guns and he attacks the unity of the church through conflict and complaining. We read in Acts 6.1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and so that's the context, the church is growing. At this point, it may be as many as 20,000 people. And so as they were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, meaning the daily distribution of food. Remember we read in Acts chapter 4 that no one in the church uh, was needy because the needs were all being met. But now as the church grows and expands up to 20,000, it's increasing in numbers. Now some people are going without Food, that kind of need that the church was meeting among its own people now has expanded. And so it says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Just quickly, who are these two kinds of people? Well, they're, they're both Jews. Like these are all Jewish people. They're just different based on where they grew up, the main language that they speak, the way they dress, like where they sense is their government attachment. Like, uh, like they're both Hebrews, but Hellenists were more culturally Greek than they were Hebrew. They had strong cultural roots in the Greek and Roman world. They dressed like Gentiles, socialized with them, thought of Rome as their government and Greek as their primary language. On the other hand, the Hebrews are those Jewish people who grew up and lived in and around Palestine. And they had, they were more traditionally Jewish in their dress and in their customs. And they spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. And so the issue here for the early church is one of racial or ethnic dispute. That's the problem going on here. And it says that the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. In other words, they assumed that the Hebrews were leaving them out of the daily distribution of food, not feeding their widows on purpose because of ethnic or cultural reasons. And now there's a couple big problems with that assumption. The first one is that they were already assigning motives. Like they were looking at the Hebrew Jews and they were saying they're prioritizing their people over our people because they think they're better than us. They're prioritizing their widows over our widows because of our differences when really it probably came down to the fact that the church had grown so swiftly and those who were being fed were the people who lived there all along, even before the birth of the church. And these were all newcomers, but they assigned motives. Second, they didn't bring this issue to the apostles. They had a problem with the church that they didn't bring to the leadership of the church. It just says that a complaint arose, which implies that there was this kind of general murmuring, gossip, complaining, like house to house, small group to small group, that finally surfaced before the apostles. They were saying, hey, these people don't care about us because, like, obviously, if they cared about us, our widows would be fed, but they must not care. And this is a huge problem you need to understand because nothing is used more effectively by Satan than distrust and resentment in the church. Like, he loves this strategy because it works almost every single time. Like, complaining kills more churches than persecution. 
Like, do you know of a church that has shut its doors because the Gestapo showed up? Or because it was burned to the ground by the government? No. Like, churches are shutting their doors because of gossip and complaining and murmuring. And we play right into the enemy's hand every time we speak evil against another believers, another believer or judge their motives. Every time we grumble and murmur. And like over the last 18 months, we've had a lot of grumbling and murmuring to work with. I mean, I think we've been extraordinarily unified as a church. But guys, I've heard from pastors within our community and pastors within our association, some of the complaints that they have received, and they're some of the same complaints I have received, right? You hear people say things like, can you believe that they're having in-person worship services? Like, don't they even care about their neighbors? Don't they even love their neighbors? Or can you believe that they canceled in-person worship service? Like, don't they even trust God? Like, you can't win. Or I can't believe that they're, that they're not wearing masks. Or I can't believe they actually expect us to wear masks. It's like, make up your mind. You know, or something like, hey, why don't, why doesn't the pastor talk more about the importance of getting a vaccination? Or did you hear that our pastor got vaccinated? Is he even a Christian? Like, come on. Like, we hear crazy stuff like that. And can I just say, I've taught on this passage before, but what really struck me this time and what I would kind of like to focus our attention on this morning is what did not happen as a result of this dispute. Like, we know what happened, and we're going to look at that in a moment, but what didn't happen as a result of this conflict? The first thing that did not happen is the church did not end in Acts chapter 6, right? Like, you don't have anybody, like, in the passage saying, hey, you know what? We've had a good run. Like, we gave it our best shot. Maybe we need to go back to fishing and collecting taxes. Thank you, Jesus. Like, you don't read that. Like, no, there, there, there is actually an Acts chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. In fact, there are 28 chapters in this book. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is still writing the story of the church to this very day. And so the church did not end in Acts chapter 6, though you would almost expect it to, right? Like especially given today's climate of complete intolerance to any mistake or misstep, any, any word that doesn't fit the perfect like framing of how things should be communicated today, you are canceled. And so the church of Jerusalem should have been canceled, but it was not canceled. And we know that's just the way it works today, right? Cancel culture offers no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness with cancel culture. There's only continual penance. Like you messed up and you need to prove to me that you are really, really sorry and you know how bad you are and you need to prove that to me today and tomorrow and by the way, for the rest of your life. And maybe you'll be forgiven, but I, I doubt it. There's no forgiveness with cancel culture and there's no grace with cancel culture. There's only judgment. Like we have story after story after story to prove that. Just ask you know, J.K. Rowling or Pierce Morgan or Dr. Seuss, come on. Like, that's the world we live in. If you've made a mistake, and guys, I've made a few. If you are crazy enough to put that mistake on the Internet, the Internet has a really 
long memory. Nothing is ever erased. And so if you've tweeted something or put a Facebook status out there that just wasn't politically correct by like today's, you know, vote, then you are out. But here in the book of Acts, the church did not end in Acts chapter 6. And the church did not split in Acts chapter 6. Like you don't read about the first Hellenist church of Jerusalem. Like, you know what? I think the best way for us to get along is just to be separate. Right? We can really get along if we just get apart. Right? The best way to have unity is to have complete uniformity. You should have a church that looks like you, and they can have a church that looks like them, and it'll be separate but equal. That works out, right? No. Like, that doesn't happen in this passage. Like, the church doesn't end, and the church doesn't split. It doesn't fall for those lies. You know, in his great speech, his I, I Have a Dream speech at, uh, in 1966, I believe, Martin Luther King said this. He said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. Guys, today is that day and the church is that place where men and women who are the children of former slaves and the children of former slave owners, which, by the way, is now actually a controversial statement. If you are the child of a former slave owner or grandchild or great-grandchild or great-great-grandchild, you need to be paying for that the rest of your life. But not according to Dr. King. There should be a day when we can sit down at the table of brotherhood, and that's what the church is all about. To which some people would say, well, what about all the different denominations? Isn't, isn't just the existence of all the different denominations within Christianity, isn't that a sign that we are divided? Well, I can just tell you this. I, I meet regularly with pastors from our own community, like guys uh, who are serving Jesus, who love the Bible, who believe the gospel, uh, who are leading churches in this community, uh, guys who are partners in the gospel from LifePoint and Legacy and Huddle Community and The Bridge and Little Ebenezer and Christ the Rock and Redeemer Huddle and Grace. And guess what? We would like you to know this. Uh, there's only one church here. There's only one church in this city. And it's the church of Jesus Christ. And we just have different locations, but we are partners in the gospel serving together. And I, we're not going to reach this city without them. And so we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in these other churches who are trying to get the message of the gospel out. We are not divided. We are united. And so the church didn't end in Acts 6. It didn't split in Acts 6. And no one was excommunicated in Acts chapter 6, Right? Like this murmuring gets to the apostles and nobody is handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh like Paul writes about. Like no one is treated like an unbeliever because of unrepentant sin like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Like the issue is brought before the leaders of the church but not for discipline but for resolution. The issue wasn't swept under the rug. It wasn't pushed aside. It was handled with grace. And guys, understand, we can have disagreements. We're not all going to think the same. Like, we can have disagreements. In fact, conflict is inevitable. We will, this side of heaven, will not have 
perfect unity in this church any more than you will have perfect unity in your own home. That's just the reality of life in a broken world. But you know what? The unity we have is by the power of the Spirit of God. And it is not only revolutionary, it's like nothing that the world has to offer. Guys, it's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to have questions. Like if you have a question of me, ask me. If you have a question about our church and the direction of it, ask the elders, ask the staff. It's okay to have questions, just ask the right people. In this passage, no one is excommunicated because they don't understand how things work. They ask the question and it's handled. There's no need for excommunication because there's no unrepentant sin. And then finally, one thing that doesn't happen in this passage is no one is canceled. Like no one is canceled. And you know who should have been canceled in this is the apostles. You have 12 men who are leading this church, this church that has grown to probably 20,000 people. Incredible things are happening. And yet this happened on their watch. On their watch, these people who are an ethnic minority within the church aren't being fed and aren't being cared for. They should be canceled. But guess what? The apostles are still there serving the church and leading in Acts chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. See, the people understood there was no grand conspiracy against the Hellenists. It was just structure that was not suited for this kind of rapid growth. Like They had very little structure in their organization. There was only one office, and that was the office of apostle, and there was only 12 of them. And so when they hear about this complaint, how do they respond? We read verse 2, that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. That, that had to be a giant meeting the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now hear this, guys. I don't want you to hear that the apostles are saying, this is somehow beneath them. Like you're, you're expecting us to serve tables? Come on. We're the apostles. No. Like they are most likely the ones who have been waiting tables serving the widows for the last five chapters. But the church has grown from 120 to 20,000, right? And they realize that this load is now just too heavy for them. And it would consume all of their time. And the greatest service they can bring to the church is to provide the church with the teaching of the Word and seeking God in prayer and equipping these new disciples. So they're not graduating out of service. They're just focusing their time on the most effective kind of service. But that means that somebody has to step up. And so they say, therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Listen, this is a real problem. This is a legitimate problem. We know that. But, if, but we're not the ones to attend to it. We need to focus our attention on telling you everything that Jesus told us like He commanded us to do. You know, so we know it's a legitimate problem. And if we neglect this problem like, <laughs> and we neglect what we're doing, then we'll be off mission. But if we neglect the, the problem, if we ignore the issue, then this will just fester. 
and then it'll be divisive and the mission will suffer. And so we need more hearts and we need more hands to serve in the place of greatest need. And so they say, it says at verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before them the apostles, and they prayed and lay hands on them. And so it says what they said pleased the whole gathering. No one was canceled. No one was canceled. The response of the church in the first century was absolutely countercultural. Understand that the Jewish people were very divided. They, there, was a, there was a lot of sense of uh, superiority among the Jewish people. We read that throughout the Gospels. It was a very divided group of people. And so for them to respond this way is completely countercultural, but not as much as it is today. Like this would be incredibly countercultural if we applied this. Like we have a tendency, by the way, uh, to read the book of Acts and get really bummed out. Like do you ever read Acts and think, oh, my church stinks. Like this, man, it would be great to be back then. And so we read the book of Acts and we tend to want to apply the things in the book of Acts that we aren't necessarily supposed to apply. And we avoid applying the things that we're actually supposed to apply. Like, for example, like we read the book of Acts and we read about signs and wonders and miracles and healings and demons cast out and people raised from the dead, these power encounters. And we think, man, I want that. That like that gets all of our attention. And we read about the incredible growth of the church and we're like, yes, that's what I want. But those are things that we have no control over. But we want to apply those instead of applying the things that we do have control over. Like, how do we handle division within the church? How do we handle persecution? How do we respond to brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, how do we respond to needs uh, in our community or within our church? Like, those are the things that we should be applying. So what are some lessons that this first century church learned through this conflict that uh, they can teach us and then the 21st century can, uh, church can apply. The first one is this. Uh, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Remember the first mistake they made is they assigned blame. They assumed bad motives. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, are you the kind of person who believes that there's some sort of grand conspiracy against you? Like if people are, are talking in a corner and they tend to look at you, they must be thinking about you and talking about you. Like, guys, nobody's thinking about you. Nobody is talking about you. Half the time, your own family's not talking about you. I mean, that's the reality. But if you're the kind of person who will not give people the benefit of the doubt, you're going to fall into this trap. And so we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like our world has created a cancel culture where we're actually actively on the lookout for offenses. Like, like where we always assign the worst motives to people's actions. Somebody says something stupid, and we just assume that it was something hateful and intended to really hurt us. Guys, we say stupid things. Like, we say idiotic things. That's just life in a broken world. But love hopes all things 
And love believes all things. And in the midst of a conflict, often the first casualty is hope. If you're in a midst of a conflict with another believer, you just think, well, I know I should talk to them. Pastor Bobby says I should talk to them. The Bible says I should talk to them. But they're not going to listen. Like, what's the point? They did this on purpose. Like, they knew what they were saying. They knew what they were doing. So hope goes out the window. And yet Paul says that those who oppose the man of God, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Guys, we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. We need to assume the best. If it comes back on you and you feel stupid because of that, I don't think you're going to stand before Jesus one day and kind of get in trouble that you put too much faith in people or loved people too much or forgave too quickly. It's not going to happen. Okay, so first, give people the benefit of the doubt. The second thing this church learned was that when you have a problem, go to the source. Now, you know, because this is, if you're a member here, this is in our founding documents as a church that we deal with things openly and honestly. And so if you have an issue or any questions about the church, we just, we answer those questions. We're not hiding anything. Like we're not doing anything on the side. We want you to ask those questions and feel free to speak up. Like this is your church and we deal with things out in the open, not in the shadows in some boardroom anywhere. We deal with things openly and honestly. Like I love when I was interviewing for Hill Country Bible Church of Austin's youth pastor position 28 years ago, I asked Danny Box, who's the pastor now of Hill Country Pflugerville, how would you handle a complaint that somebody brings against me? Like if a parent was upset with me and they came and said something about me, how would you handle that? What would you do with it? And Danny said, well, I would just ask him, how did Bobby respond when you brought this to his attention? And I went, what? Like that is like the greatest answer I've ever heard. I mean, seriously, it just makes sense, right? If somebody comes to you with a complaint about someone, your response should always be, hey, how did they respond when you brought this to their attention? Oh, you have it? Well, you need, that's the first step, buddy. Like, go to them and talk to them. And if they don't listen to you, I'm willing to go with you and hear about this in their presence for the first time, but first you need to go to them. If your brother has something against you, you go to him in private. And if he responds correctly, you want a brother. It's all good. If not, you take a witness with you. And so I thought, man, that is really great advice. But you know what? It's always easier to cancel somebody than to have a conversation with them. It's always, it's always, always easier to talk about someone than to, than to just talk with them. And guys, we need to have conversations. Like when you have a problem with someone, go to the source. And then finally, be quick to forgive the, the guilty. If they're guilty, forgive them. Like lead with forgiveness. Like don't hold forgiveness out. And if they jump through the right hoops, if they seem broken enough, ashamed enough, then you might give them a little bit of that. That's not forgiveness. Lead with forgiveness like like in this situation the apostles probably led by Peter at this point didn't really do anything wrong it was just an oversight 
And so they're not guilty here, but even if they're not guilty right now, give it a minute. They will be guilty. I mean, right around the corner from this, just a couple years later, Peter, the leader of the apostles, is in Galatia with the Gentile church, and then these Hebraic Jews, these Judaizers it calls them, come to Galatia, and Peter divides from the Gentiles out of embarrassment and only hangs out with the Jewish believers. And so he wasn't a racist in this situation, but he was a racist in that situation. Like he, he messed up. And so Paul had to actually confront him to his face and then he repented. And it's all good after that. Like he writes about Paul later on as a brother and a fellow apostle. And so we need to be quick to forgive the guilty because all of us have an amazing ability to be guilty. Have an amazing ability to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Like, have you ever said anything that like when you're saying it, you wish you could take it back, but it's too late? Like, I remember years ago, I was at a Christian bookstore when they actually had bookstores back in the day. Remember that? And I was at a Christian bookstore that was a franchise bookstore. And I saw the lady who was running it. And I knew her because she ran the Christian bookstore that was over by Hill Country, Austin. I knew she was pregnant. And so I went up to her and said... Oh, I don't even want to say it. I said, when's the baby due? Gosh, I'm so stupid. So stupid. Oh, like as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, don't, what? What are you, who are you? Too late. And she looked at me with this look on her face. Guys, it was so sad. She just had this sadness to her. And she went, oh, well, um, I actually had the baby about six weeks ago and inside, like something died inside me at that moment. And I was like, oh, uh, I mean, uh, it's just like, but it's okay. You know, uh, I'm still carrying a lot of the baby weight, but the doctors say that's normal and I'm exercising. Like she's trying to make me feel good. And I just thought, oh, I just want to, I just want to move away. Can I get into witness protection for this? I want to change my name and move out of state. Now, I couldn't do that. The FBI wouldn't accept me, but I never went to that bookstore again, <laughs> ever. Like, I discovered Amazon after that, all right? Like, I was so just embarrassed. I can't believe I said that. Ugh, I should be canceled. Guys, we, the world has created a cancel culture that gives people permission to nurse grudges and withhold forgiveness. And yet the Bible tells us that we are to forgive even as we have been forgiven. We need to lead with forgiveness. We need to move toward people already having done business with God and forgiving them with the hope that we can restore this relationship. Like the world says this, the world says, I will forgive them they just need to fill in the blank. Give me this stuff. Do this stuff for me. Apologize. Be ashamed enough. Go public with their shame. Whatever. Like, I will forgive them. They just need to fill in the blank. But that is not forgiveness. Like, that's just, hey, I'll, 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 I'll let you off the hook because I have you on a different hook. That's all that is. But it's not forgiveness. 
Like I said, have you ever said anything you wish you could immediately take back? Have you ever posted anything online that you wished you could go back in and erase? Like for all of us in this room, if you're 35 and under, you should be really thankful that you grew up before Twitter. Right? I mean, think about it. People are being canceled today because they posted something when they were 15 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old. People are losing their jobs today because they posted something when they were a teenager. Like people are canceled simply because there's a record out there of their humanity. Did you ever say anything stupid? Like, I was an idiot when I was 16, 16 years. I was an idiot last week, okay? But when I was 16, I said some stupid stuff. And I'm so glad it's not out there in the World Wide Web just floating out there waiting to haunt me. And guys, there is a lot of discussion today about the whole topic of critical theory and especially critical race theory. In fact, I, I've read probably eight or ten books in the last year on this topic, the topic of, you know, critical theory and wokeism and social justice and all that kind of stuff. I've listened to countless podcasts and lectures, and I know that the topics are complex. But can I just tell you this? What I have seen is that whenever critical theory is applied and wherever critical theory is applied, unity is shattered. Critical theory is not the way of the gospel. Understand that. Whenever you adopt that as your system for reconciliation, what you lose is the gospel. What you lose is the unity of the church that can only be brought by the Spirit of God. So wherever it's applied, whether it's a family or a business or a sports team or even the church, it shatters unity. And as I said last week to this service, I know I can never be canceled because Jesus was canceled for me. Amen? Like Jesus was canceled for you on the cross. The punishment that you deserve the canceling that you deserve, the shame that you deserve was placed on Jesus. Not just the acceptable sins, but Jesus died for racists. Jesus died for people who crossed the line morally, left and right. Jesus died for sinners like us. And I can never be canceled because Jesus was canceled for me. That's the gospel. And I can never be canceled because Jesus has canceled my debt. He has carried that and canceled my debt. And guys, we don't need the world's answer because we have the gospel. Amen. Like we don't need the kind of unity that the world offers because we have the church Amen. from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And we have brothers and sisters from every language and every culture and every color that we will be with for eternity. And they're our brothers and sisters more so now than our flesh and blood because we're united by the Spirit of God. That's our family. And we don't need critical theory to tell us that because we have Jesus who lived it. 
who died on the cross to bring men and women of every color together within the church. Guys, the church didn't end in Acts chapter 6. It didn't split in Acts chapter 6. There was no excommunication. No one was canceled. But what happened? It says that the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. What? Like the very people who chapters earlier were persecuting the church, something happened. And now the priests are actually believing in Jesus. Why? Because no one could orchestrate this kind of unity. No one could bring these kinds of people together except the Spirit of God. They saw it and they wanted it and they put their faith in Christ. See, way too often we want to apply the results. Verse 7 here, but skip all the hard work. What's the hard work? What brings about this kind of growth? Well, the full application of the Gospel. Like, I believe the message of the Gospel, which means I believe that I'm a sinner just like you are, and that God has brought us together together in one, and I want to live in that kind of unity here and now and hope for a greater unity in the future. So it's brought by the full application of the Gospel, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, only He can do it, and as the result of the prayer of Jesus Himself who prayed in Gethsemane, I pray not only for these, that means the disciples, but also for those, this is us, who believe in Me through their Word. May they all be one. As You, Father, are in Me and I in You, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that You sent Me. Guys, this is the final apologetic as the world looks in on the church and sees the kind of unity we can have beyond anything that's linked us together because of race or because of our socioeconomic status or because of the language we speak or where we were born. A unity that can only be brought by the power of the Spirit of God. When the world looks on, they know that Jesus must have come from the Father just like these priests did. And here's the living proof. This Acts chapter 6 happened 1,960 years ago. Look around. We're still here. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell and disunity will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, thank You that uh, through the sacrifice of Your Son and through His blood, He has purchased men and women for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And He has made them one bride, one church, one family, brothers and sisters united. Lord, I thank You that I am united with the Hellenists and the Hebrews from this passage. That I'm united with the scandalous Saul 
the persecutor of the church who was welcomed in as an apostle just a couple chapters later because of how you transformed him by the gospel. I'm united with the Gentiles and the Jews who have that conflict in Acts 15. I'm united with men of every nation, of every language, of every color, that I call them brothers and sisters because of Christ who has made us one. Lord, receive now this offering of worship from us, we pray.